Stay tuned at the very, very end of this episode for outtakes from this episode. They are hilarious. Jillian Pensavalli. Patrick, hi. Hi, girl. Hey. What are we talking about today? We're talking about who took Johnny and my table flipometer. <laughs> it's pretty up there, you guys. It's up there, if I do say so myself. Please contact us if you have our son. We'll work with your demands because we want him back. There was no crime scene. He just vanished. My husband and I feel we must do what we humanly can as his parents. There was a lot of fear. They didn't catch the perpetrator. Something like this is going to happen again. But every time we found a clue, we ran into a brick wall. And at that moment, when our eyes met, I knew I was going to hear exactly what happened to my son that day. You have no idea what it's like to look for your missing child. It is hell on earth. Sunday, September 5th, approximately 6 a.m. 12-year-old John Gosh had been delivering papers in this affluent neighborhood of West Des Moines. That was the last time he was seen. The parents believe the boy is alive and has been kidnapped. Johnny, we love you. We're waiting for you to come home. We're doing everything in our power to get you back. Take care, babe. All right, so for, if, if you can, put aside for one second all of, like, the kidnapping and the horror. Right. So we can just, like, focus for just one 30 seconds uh-huh. on how 80s everything about this movie is. It's super 80s, which is accurate because it happened in 1982. It took, yeah, it took place, right? This is not, like, a period piece. No, but it, it's, like, so 82. <laughs> Every time there's, like, a flashback in the news media or anything, like, the first, the very first thing we see is, like, Jane Polly with her, like, feathered hair. Right, yeah. And she's just, like, it just, it's so 80s to me. Lots of shoulder pads, lots of that like kind of shiny material that like the the dresses. It's like everyone was wearing a bridesmaid's dress back in that time. But these people are grieving and horrible things happen. It's so bad. I I have a lot of, yeah. So the the reason we see Jane Polly is because apparently she had like a network news show back Mm -hmm. in the day. And here is a close up of a 14 year old boy in terrible trouble. John David Gosh was kidnapped on a Sunday morning as he delivered newspapers in suburban Des Moines. The the first people we see are Noreen and and John Gosh Sr. Now, I had seen this documentary before, and I forgot how completely uninvolved the police were, to the point of, like, hindering the finding of the child. I was going to say, there's uninvolved. There's doing nothing, and then there's actually being a detriment. Yeah, because, because like, Jane Polly says to the Goshes, like, if anybody has any information on your child, who should they call? And John Gosh Sr. is like... Not the cops. (laughs) Here's our home phone number. Right, right, yeah. If someone sees him... What should they do? Who should they call? They should call our home telephone number, which is area code 515-225-7456. Well, if anyone sees a little boy that looks anything like Johnny Gosh, call that number. Thank you very much. I was like, wait, why are you giving out your home phone number? I know, because that's how bad it was. And then Noreen says this thing, you know, we're leaving the porch light on every night. That's what moms do. Johnny, we love you. We're waiting for you to come home. We're doing everything in our power to get you back. And we're leaving the porch light on every night. Moms are like that. 
And immediately you're like, okay, well, this is going to ruin me. I know. The rest of my, like, great. After we cut away from Jay and Polly, they they start, I just have to mention this because I wouldn't be me if I didn't. Sure. They are interviewing, like, the random people in the town about, like, what they think happened. (laughs) And you're just, like, watching it. And all of a sudden, this, like, Freddie Mercury, (laughs) (laughs) K-U-E-E-N. Maureen's mom has kind of looked on as kind of a nut anymore, which is too bad, but but it certainly affected her drastically. She's kind of a nut. See, now I hear him as like this Brooklyn guy, kind of like Arnold like pictures, which is not how he sounds at all. No, he's got this like sibilant S. He's wearing this like sleeveless T-shirt. I was like, Mary Jane. Mary Jane. Yeah, he, he says something. He's like, it's kind of a shame, but uh, she turned out to be kind of a nut, but whatever. And it's like, what? oh, okay. I know. I kind sure. of agree with you, Mary Jane. <laughs> So now she's become sort of like the go-to person. This is present day Noreen. Yeah, all of a sudden we see her like in her car. Which I was shocked to see. I was like, oh, okay. We're we're, we're following modern day Noreen. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, So she's become, she goes to meet Drew and Heather Collins, who are parents who have, their children are missing. And she goes to just help them. We begin this half hour with a desperate search for two young cousins. The search continues for eight-year-old Elizabeth Collins and 10-year-old Lyra Cook. The cousins' bites were found by the lake last Friday. You are looking at these people and they are just at an absolute loss for how to proceed from one second to the next. Right. For your child to go missing with no evidence whatsoever to actually like poof and vanish mm-hmm. is something that I, can ne- I can't yeah. and probably will never be able to wrap my yeah. mind around. It's insane. And they say these heartbreaking things, you know, like it's just weird how quiet it is. What's the biggest thing that concerns you other than getting your daughter back and her safety? I don't know what's harder not knowing or knowing. I mean, it's, if there's something bad that's happened, I mean. I know. It's hard. Because when you don't know, your mind kind of imagines what might be well, that's happening. That's all we do all day. Oh my God, I know. And you're just like, oh my God, who are these monsters that are doing this to these people? But you're right, Noreen was like, well, the police were awful to me and I wonder if you're having the same experience. And they were like, no, they've been great actually. And Noreen's like, that's because I raised hell. It's true. And got shit changed. Yeah, it's true. And we'll get to that. We'll get to it. Noreen really has been, again, she ends up kind of crazy in the end, but like the work that she did in the 80s that really changed the way that the police and and the nation react to missing children is like a debt that we will never be able to repay this woman yeah i mean she took her outrage and just like i'm sorry whatness and turned it into he she used that power for good really where she's mm-hmm. like no i don't think you understand yeah. this yeah the, the one other thing we learn about noreen right quick and this actually becomes important later but it made me chuckle and the moment was that she teaches yoga for stress management for 40 years <laughs> 40 years she's been teaching yoga that's crazy i know and i've been teaching yoga for 40 years long time it's a long time to stick with one thing and people often ask me well how can you do the same thing doesn't it get boring no it works okay we have to flashback we have to talk about noreen's life before she meets john gosh senior johnny's dad right so her first husband died of cancer oh my god but like they, so he's a fox, of course. He's right. like, and she's a fox. Oh my god! They sure. show a picture of her in her wedding dress. I'm like, you guys are the most gorgeous. Yeah. But he, they find out he gets diagnosed with terminal cancer mm-hmm. two months before he dies. What happens? A tornado rips their home apart. I am not. That is not hyperbole. Rips no. their home yeah. apart. Everything was destroyed. And they have two children. Oh my she god! Can't find the kids. Nope. 
When I started looking for my children, I couldn't find them. I was pulling apart rafters of the house, walls. And then when she does find them, where are they? They're like under the rubble. Face down in a pile of gravel and glass. And it starts pouring. And then the rain came, torrents of rain. When the rain hit them, they started screaming. And that was like music to my ears. It meant they weren't dead. Yeah. She she talks about her two previous kids, her uh, her two first children, who we do not see in this movie. No. Raises some red flags. I thought that too. Red flags. It's weird that she doesn't even say these kids' names. Is I have that a, weird? No, you, oh, it's very weird. Okay. It's very weird that these kids are not involved in any way, in, in any way in this documentary. Because Johnny's their half-brother. Right. And we never see them. We never hear from them. Like, that definitely raises some, some, some questions for me. Okay, I thought so too. Yeah. All right, so Noreena's set up with John Gosh Sr. Mm-hmm. They fall in love, get married. Right. Have a kid. Right. Johnny. And now this is, of course, the part of the documentary where we hear all the the lovely, adorable things about this missing child. Yeah. Loved his dog, Gretchen. <laughs> Gretchen, you're adorable. I hope you're doing well with all, with all the other pups up there. I was going to um, say, Gretchen is not still with us. No, no, no. Yeah. But we'll get back to Gretchen. Yeah. Not just because I love talking about dogs, but we'll, we'll get back to her because she's she's sort of a clue here. But he started doing this paper route to raise money for a bike, and he ends up earning it. He wanted the paper route because uh, he wanted to get himself a dirt bike. He became quite the little businessman. He saved his money, and he bought it. And then he and his brother would go riding out into the fields. Even his dad is just like, he would really go out of his way to find the perfect present for someone's birthday. I mean, this kid, for a a 12-year-old boy, 12 or 13. Uh, 13. 13-year-old boy. Most 13-year-old boys are like, meh. <laughs> but you know, you, when I think of a 13-year-old boy, I don't think of someone who like takes the time to make sure the person's really going to love this gift that he gets them. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> and it's always like, of course, in these documentaries, this is the part of... I mean, this happens. This is following the, the formula. Yeah. The lovely things come out. Yeah, of course. Okay, let's talk about the morning Johnny disappears. What happens? What's Se- the timeline? September 5th, 1982. Super early in the morning, 5.30, getting ready to to do the papers, as they say. And John, Big John, John Sr., I'll mm-hmm. say, usually helps Johnny with the papers. And parents did this. Yeah, of with, course. You know, like that, you know, it's I early. had a paper out for literally one day. My mom got up How to help me. How did that go? My mom got up to help me, and I was like, this is, mom, I'm not doing this ever it's again. it's still dark out. What <laughs> is going on? So, of course, every morning, except for that morning... The dad doesn't help him. On weekends, his dad would help Johnny on the paper route. And um, that's not what happened. And I noticed the way the dad said it in the documentary. He said it matter-of-factly. Like, he definitely said, like, I've in, in his, it was like, I didn't help him that morning. And he was like, I have worked through my guilt on this. It's not my fault. Right. People shouldn't steal children. <laughs> Right, yeah, you know, one is yeah. zillion percent. Totally. Like you, sh- like you can wear the short skirt and you can not help right. your kid on Sunday. Like whatever, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. So then, of course, people are like, "Where's the paper?" That particular Sunday, we got a phone call from one of the neighbors wondering where the paper was. Of course, Johnny was like also really good at his job. Uh-huh. That's how he could, re- you know, earn the money to buy the bike that he wanted. He just like he got it done. So the neighbors call because they're like, "Where are the papers?" Johnny's usually all over this, and then the dad just goes out looking. In the Johnny. car, yeah. And finds, oh, this is like so heartbreaking, I and know. finds the little wagon, the like Red Rider wagon, filled with the papers and Gretchen the dog. But no Johnny, no but, sign of Johnny. Right. It's important that Gretchen is there. And again, we'll get back to it, yeah. not just for dogs. Yeah. But it's, that's a big, a big piece of this puzzle in a, in a way that she is still there. Yep. Didn't see him anywhere around and told Noreen, I said, 
something's wrong. She called the police right away. Noreen calls the cops. How do the cops respond? They're like, is this like the third or fourth time your kids run away? And she's like, he doesn't run away. It took about 45 minutes before the police arrived. The police department was only 10 blocks away. The cop looked at me and he said, uh, well, has your son ever run away before? That kid never ran away. That really upset us. Now we meet John Rossi, this, the witness. Yeah. John, John Rossi is an adult. There's also a witness, Mike, who's a paper boy. There are paper boy witnesses, which makes this a little difficult. The, literally, this is, this is like newsies. There's like 400 paper boys. I know. Don't get me started on newsies. I'll talk about it for four hours. Okay. <laughs> Let's. Okay, so just to, to, to dive a little bit deeper into the like actual timeline, right? So 5.45 a.m., Johnny leaves the house. Mm-hmm. And we know this because the neighbor heard the wagon. And so, Mike, another paper boy was picking up his papers because there's a gazillion paper boys mm-hmm. on, the, on, on the job. Noticed that a car stopped and then backed up mm-hmm. to, like, meet Johnny, to, like, stop and talk to Johnny. So this is when the witness, John Rossi, is outside, right? And what happens? So John Rossi, the adult witness, sees this man in the car talking to Johnny Gosh. And Johnny Gosh is a little freaked out, obviously, and calls John Rossi over and is like, hey, can you help this guy? He's asking me for directions and it's creeping me out, which is also like, great job, Johnny right, Gosh. Like, right. that's what you do. Totally. You tell the adult, thank God that guy was out at, four, at 5.45 in the morning. Mm-hmm. But John Rossi, the way he describes the guy in the car, it's like, yes. can you just say he was coked up? Because he's like, no, he wasn't drunk. He was alert. And he says, like, he was raring to go. He wasn't drunk, but he looked like he's uh, been drinking a lot of caffeine, you know, that kind of thing. Not sleepy. Well, he wasn't sleepy. He was, he looked like he was, on, the, you know, ready to go. <laughs> That's kind of odd. It, Six o'clock in the morning. And I was like, okay. He goes, he looked like he had a lot of caffeine and he was all hyped up and not really the way you look at 545 in the morning. I was like, so he was on Coke, John Rossi. You can say that. The guy's probably a monster. To say that he also did Coke is like the least of his offenses. Right, exactly. He's he looked angry and ready to go. I was like, that's anyone I've ever seen on cocaine ever. And so then another witness named Mike sees a tall, slender man come out of the woods between two houses and follow Johnny. Right. And then two other newsboys pass Johnny. Again, 800 newsboys right. out, like, in the, delivering papers. Carry in the banner. <laughs> <laughs> that's, new, that's a newsies joke, guys. Sorry. And this is when PJ Smith, the homeowner or whatever, like wakes up and hears like the car door close. At about this time, PJ Smith reported hearing a car door and upon sitting up in bed, he observed a silver and black Ford Fairmont start up from the area where John Gosh was last seen and made a left turn after rolling through the stop sign without stopping. I mean, think about this is there's some commotion. It's 545 in the morning. 600 news kids out on the sidewalk. Right. Some some coked up maniac asking for directions. <laughs> and PJ, his uh, eyewitness testimony is that the car ran the stoplight. Rolled through the stop sign. So clearly this guy is like, he's a slippery like, character, as, as they said of the Amanda Knox documentary about. But the thing that's crazy is that none of this amounts to anything because technically there's there not no a crime scene. scene. Nobody saw anything that, to us, was an explanation for the boy's disappearance. He just vanished. 
This is just that unsolved, unexplained missing person case. So there's no crime scene, but there's literally like nine witnesses. <laughs> right. I mean, my God, there's like, I mean, there's so many witnesses. Right. They were able to reconstruct what happened like second by second. I, I loved how they did that in the documentary. Yeah. Give me a good map with moving oh, yeah. things. That I'm Keepers such a, nailed it on yeah, that front. Yeah, totally. I'm such a visual person. I'm yeah. just like, I, I need to follow the little moving dot. Totally. So then it cuts to like four days after the disappearance. Mm-hmm. Parents are a wreck. Mom's in full makeup. Um, the cops are doing what? Literally nothing. They are trying to catch people in speed traps, you guys. As far as any surprises by the police department, I, I think every day was a surprise. Most of the time they weren't doing much. One day when we had people searching all over the area, I pulled up and there was a policeman sitting there shooting radar for speeders, like two blocks from our house. I told him, I said, put that gun away and go find my son, you know? Meanwhile, the entire town is like, hi, excuse me. Right. A child up and vanished. Yeah. Let's Just, focus. The other thing that happens in this part is that they some one of the journalists, they talked to a bunch of journalists in this episode in this movie. And the journalist is like, you guys don't understand how bad it was in 1982. So just for the record, in 1982, police had to wait 72 hours before they could file a missing persons report for a child. Mm-hmm. The FBI would track your stolen car across state lines, but not your missing kid. And there was absolutely no infrastructure in place to support the hunt for missing children. Right. You were really... Like, no national database. Yeah. And I want to say, too, that it's never really fleshed out in the movie, but it, it the, the idea that the police are covering something up is definitely floated oh, yeah. at this point. What is the police chief's name? Chief Orville Cooney. <laughs> you guys are making this too easy he for us. Looks like who is that guy? Yosemite Sam <laughs> with the with the big mustache, and it's like yes. the pew pew pew. He's like an evil little idiot, and he the reporter that you're talking about, Frank Santiago. Yeah. Wow. You just have all the names. All in caps. <laughs> all in caps. I do my research. Uh, Chief Orville Cooney. Would, I have to say it with that tone because it's like you're kidding, right? It's like he went, like his parents named him. It's like he's going to grow up to be garbage, you guys. Let's do it. He is quoted as saying, I don't give a damn about what Noreen Gosh says. Girl, you should. I interviewed Orville Cooney. And believe me, I remember this. Says, I don't give a damn about what Noreen Gosh has to say. And that set off the fireworks. Mr. Orville Cooney, please take several seats. Take several seats and give a shit about what a, the parent of a missing child has to say. Would it kill you? I know. I will like, say. I stay on brand. I get it. I stay on your brand as like the cartoon villain. But enough is enough. And then it turns out, guess what? 17 out of the 32 cops in the department come out and they're like, oh, dude, he's a nightmare. He's totally a nightmare. The Des Moines Tribune reports 18 officers making allegations against Chief Cooney. In- right. He does police work drunk. Wait, this is my favorite this is my favorite charge that's ever been levied against anybody in the world one of the charges against him was doing police work after drinking yeah and it's like i get it i mean have a cocktail at seven o'clock i know i edit podcasts with a cocktail every <laughs> once in a while uh and he's a racist yeah he jukes the stats <laughs> he, what jukes the stats did you watch the wire when they like mess they like mess with the numbers to make it look good for them no that's called what juking the stats it's like cooking the books Anyway, sorry, but what he would also do is like change tickets, like get his friends and family out of trouble. Like he totally lived up to Orville Redenbach or whatever his name is. Orville Cooney. 
God. Both Cooney and Mayor George Mills say the actions of this many officers in a 37-person department cannot be ignored. He's the worst, <laughs> and he's forced to resign, so he's out of the way. Thank God that nightmare is over. The man was not handling the case correctly. It was later proved that he wasn't. He needed to be removed from office. So this part of the search is where they bring in Ken Wooden. Yeah. He's like a, this was mind blowing, but I guess I get it. So the the whole idea of bringing this guy in is that he's an, uh, an expert on pedophilia. Right. A word that Noreen had never heard before. And many of the people. Yeah. I had never heard the word pedophile. And most of the people around us in this community had never heard the word either. They would hold like town meetings where these people would come and present. You know, we brought in George Gallup, we brought in Ken Wooden, world famous, both of them world famous. And we had seats set up for 500 people. 45 people came. It's unbelievable. The register didn't cover it. No TV stations covered it. Parents did not want to think about this sort of thing happening. Right. But and now we're just like, how do you not know what pedophilia is? Mm-hmm. Like, but back then they didn't. I remember in 82, like no internet, no, right. no viral news stories. This was, I'm sure, I hate to say it happening all over the place, but yeah. they didn't know because news didn't travel the way it travels now. Right. And because people just didn't want to deal with it. Right. It's too scary. It's yep. too horrible. So this is the part where you the dog. This is where yes. the dog comes back. Yeah. So Ken Wooden says a newspaper boy serving papers missing and a dog was still there and it was obvious if the dog was still there he was no runaway that the fact that the dog was there and everything else was there is the sign of a pedophile that he just took the 13 year old boy that's disgusting to say right but he's like because there was no crime scene they just scooped him up and he's like that's like pedophilia sex ring that has that written all over it right and the cops are like we got to get our quota for the speed traps, though. <laughs> Thanks for playing. We're going to go in a different direction. <laughs> so almost two years to the day after Johnny Gosh is kidnapped, the parents are getting no help from the FBI. They're getting no help from the police. They're being, like, vilified by by the police and the FBI, calling them cranks and crazy and Noreen's yeah, he's a runaway too intense. And... Right. Oh, yeah. Another hysterical woman. Don't even get me started. <laughs> I will flip this table. <laughs> Well, I have to say, we are told time and again by everybody that Noreen was demanding. Noreen is not, never has been, as far as I know, a shrinking violet. She will not just stay home and cry in her handkerchief. There were stories about cops who wanted off this case so bad because they couldn't handle this woman. You never see her with a hair out of place or riled up in any way. Every time she talks on camera, she is focused. Mm-hmm. She is knows exactly what she wants to say. Yeah. You never see her as hysterical as she has every single right to be. Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, she could be scre- She could be pulling. Remember the woman who wasn't there? She was like screaming and crying on the <laughs> side of the street. Yeah. She could be doing that on the news and that would be totally valid. Yeah. But meanwhile, she's like, hey, so if you know what, call me directly. The cops aren't doing anything. If you have anything, that would be great. (laughs) And it's like this hysterical woman is too much for us to handle. Okay. So what happens almost two years to the day? August 14th, 1984, Eugene Martin, 13, disappears. The nightmare for the Martin family began August 12th, 1984. In those first days, FBI agents and volunteers searched the city for clues. He disappears while delivering papers. Witnesses say they saw him talking to someone in a car. Everything is the same as Johnny. And the cops what did the police once say? again are like, there, I don't see a connection here. What are you guys, crazy? It's just a 13-year-old boy delivering papers, talking to a witness in a car and everything. And he just vanished into thin air. It has nothing to do with Johnny Gosh. I don't know what you're talking about. The police say they cannot connect those two stories. 
which I find kind of incredible. There's so many similarities, you know, at the same day, time, uh, conditions. How could you not think they were connected? And the entire town is collectively like pulling their hair yeah. out. Yeah. Like, oh my God. And then we meet Lieutenant Bob Rushing, which like. Oh, listen, Rushing. Another one we need to open some of these folding chairs for so we can take several seats. He was like, the only thing similar is their gender. <laughs> right. <laughs> we worked in depth uh, trying to find a connection. We did not find a connection. The boys were dissimilar in, in, uh, in, in most aspects other than their gender. I was like, wait, and their age, and their quote occupation, and the time of day, and that they were talking to a man. Time in the of car. year. Time of year. Do you? Must, right. Do I have to go on? Right. No. Can I have your job, you idiot? <laughs> and then by September of 1984, a local dairy put. Johnny and Eugene's faces on the side of their milk cartons. Even the local dairy was like, all right, we got it. If the cops aren't doing anything, we'll do what we can. And they yeah. put these, these, you know, heartbreaking photos on the side of the milk cartons. So two of the things we, we find out at this point, two of the things that Noreen has been partially largely responsible for is the creation for the national center for missing and exploited children and the Johnny Gosh Bill. What the Johnny Gosh Bill does is it requires law enforcement to act immediately in Iowa when a child is reported missing. That, that was somebody's life who was falling apart and their son was lost. And I mean, how do you go on? And she went on and on and on. And for a young reporter, that at times would be frustrating. But now as somebody who has four children, Thank you. But now, did you ever watch America's Most Wanted when you were younger? Listen, when they, when John Walsh, his voice appeared on the screen before his face, I literally did like the Arsenio Hall fist bump. I was like, John Walsh is John here. John Walsh is going to save the day. Yeah. <laughs> I know what it's like to search for your missing child. I know what it's like to not know what happened. And so I thought, let's go back and look. Maybe somebody will have the guts to finally tell us what happened to John. So John Walsh is the creator of America's Most Wanted because John Walsh can relate to the Goshes because his he has a tragic story about his son, Adam, who went missing and they uh, found his dismembered head. Really? 120 miles away from their home. So John Walsh immediately is like, well, now, uh, now I'm an advocate. Now I'm an activist. Now I'm going to do that. And yeah. that's, that was the inspiration for America's Most Wanted. So they worked together to get these bills and, and do right. all that. A series of things happen sort of quickly at this point. After we meet John Walsh, we get like a timeline. What happens in 1985? Okay, I like scream. I know, I know. There is, someone gets changed from a grocery store in Sioux City and it's a dollar bill with a handwritten note that says, I'm alive and it's signed by Johnny Gosh. Right. You guys! I know, that's crazy. The signature is right in this area. He was somehow able to communicate that he was still alive. Now, listen, anybody could do that. Absolutely. Anybody could write it. Sure. I mean, they didn't get into, like, if the handwriting was similar. We never we never see that part of it. But it's super creepy. Yeah. And you just, to, just this is a good time to say there is a rabbit hole of information and 
conspiracy theories in this. There was handwriting done on this. There thing. was. They, yeah. they just didn't get into it in the movie. No. So that's the thing. Like we're just gonna focus on what we learn. And wait, can you tell me real quick, and then we won't focus on anything else outside of the yeah, movie. Yeah, where it's like, oh, the, yeah, there there is, but there, you know, handwriting. Handwriting yeah. is really tough. Handwriting can't even be introduced in court in criminal cases. Right. It's like, and that's like eyewitness testimony is also the least yeah. um, reliable. So yeah, it's like the handwriting. It could be some kid. It could be. I don't know when the dollar was minted, which is important. Uh huh. So I don't know a lot about that. It could be someone playing the cruelest joke ever. Right. But of course, Noreen, who wants everything to point to Johnny, is like, aha. That's him. That's him. So then in 1986, what happens? 14-year-old Mark Allen, another Des Moines teen, disappears. He walked out the door, and the kids were getting ready to have pizza. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. The last thing he said to me as he walked out the door was, save me some pizza, Mom. I'll be hungry when I get home. And he waved when he got to the bushes, and I waved at him, and that was that. And I never saw him again. Okay, so then in 1991, who do we meet? Paul Bonacci, but they call him Bonacci, so that's what I'm saying. (laughs) Paul Bonacci was a victim of a child prostitution network that was centered in Omaha, Nebraska. And nine years after Johnny Gosh's abduction, Paul Bonacci came forward and claimed that he helped abduct Johnny Gosh. That was the big bang in the Johnny Gosh case. All right, tell me everything. He's an inmate at the Lincoln Correctional Center in Nebraska. And he comes forward saying that he wants to help this case. And he says that he helped abduct Johnny for this child prostitution ring for this dude named Emilio. And he did that because he had at some point been abducted or whatever and was a part of this ring. He was a part of the ring. And we'll get into the details proving why he could be involved in this ring, what he knows. But they don't go into how he got out of the ring. Right. And was and wound up in jail. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm super curious as to how he got out of this awful yeah. situation so um, Noreen finds out about him and says she needs like some time before she can go meet him face to face but then like the documentary crew follows her as she goes to like have her one-on-one meeting with Paul Bonacci right the video can't pick up just how badly Noreen Gosh is shaking as she sees Paul Bonacci in the flesh for the first time he fills out a consent form not knowing who this woman is Johnny's mother Mrs. Gosh wanted to talk to you just tell me what happened. Please. And we learn awful things. He's 24 at the time. He says he's been sexually abused since he was six. He is also a sex offender. Yes. And he claims to have multiple personality disorder, and he can can summon these personalities. At will. At will. I can hear what these other personalities are saying and stuff and the things they've done. I mean, like with Johnny and... So the meeting between... Paul Bonacci and uh, Noreen is real intense. Let's talk about then the story that he tells Noreen. Noreen's like, tell me what happened. And again, there's chloroform involved, you guys. Oh my God, chloroform. Chloroform to me, I'm always like, what is this? Chloroform like a real thing? Yes. Check my Google search history, which is so (laughs) weird and creepy. You know, I I didn't want to Google it because I didn't want that in my Google search history. Yeah, but now you have the screenshots from my phone on your phone. (laughs) So Paul Bonacci tells... Noreen, that he was with a man in a car and that his job was to chloroform Johnny. Right. And then, like, throw him in the back of the car. And then, so in this conversation, Paul draws Noreen a map of where the plan was to abduct Johnny on his paper route, route, however you say it. (laughs) Benassi drew a map of the clan, a replica of one drawn by the kidnappers. Noreen Gosh says this X marks the exact spot of the abduction. 
he drew the map so specifically and the pickup point was not on the corner as it was where lots of people think it was often she says most people mistakenly believe it happened at the corner but it was perfectly off the corner yeah and paul got that right right and that's one of the many things he got right that weren't publicized he mentions the birthmark the birthmark was all over the news had a birthmark on his chest or something on his chest it was like a look like south america he mentions that there's he has a uh scar on his tongue from when he was younger and, and bit through it when he fell. Yeah. That was not publicized. He knew that. Yeah. He knew that there was a burn from on his leg from, I think, like his brother's dirt bike or yeah. something. Um, that was not publicized. Paul knew that. He also knew that Johnny, this brings tears to my eyes. He stammers when he gets upset and agitated. That was not publicized. Paul knew that. And the big one was that that Noreen does yoga, that right. Noreen had taught him yoga. He, he talked about something about meditation, but I don't know what that meant, or yoga, or some kind of... And then we, he, he said something about that he'd seen his mom do that or something, or she told him, taught him how to do that. But the way he says it is something like a meditation. He didn't know exactly what it was, but as he's described, he's like yoga or meditation or something, yeah. and like he knew how to do some of that. And it's sort of like, as you're experiencing this, it's like you're talking to like a medium or a psychic. Right. Who's like and Noreen is like, I have never told the press that Johnny went with me to yoga classes. It wasn't relevant to his kidnapping. The cops from Johnny's town never go to question this guy. Never, ever. And th- when they show that on the, the like on-screen text, I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. Really? <laughs> I know. Because like, they're like, maybe we will. Maybe, maybe if the time is right, maybe we'll go. We're waiting. And it's like, just go hear the guy out. Can you just? He's singing like a canary. Just talk to him. <laughs> he's telling everybody who'll listen. Yeah. So then America's Most Wanted gets involved. So John Walsh is like, guess what? Yeah. I'm using my America's Most Wanted power. Nobody had found Johnny, so any excuse is a good excuse to keep it in the light. And now it's 1992. It's the 10th anniversary of Johnny Gosh being abducted. So what they do is they take, Paul is giving them more information. There's this house in Colorado. We went to Colorado with Balachi. You know, he said, I'll show you the house where they used to keep us. And he described this house with this secret underground chamber where they would hide the kids when the police would come. Well, he also mentions that Johnny had tried to run away once, so he's been branded with, like, an actual brand. So America's Most Wanted goes to the house. They they go to Colorado. They take Paul. And they're like, we didn't think the house was really going to be there. And there it was. It's abandoned. We go underneath it, and sure enough, there's this chamber dug out under the house with kids' initials carved in the wood. Paul, like, can't be there, yeah. obviously. He's, he's freaking out. a lot of trouble with it. And then there's, like, the guy from America's Most Wanted, not John Walsh, like, his producer, and he's like, we were just like, oh, shit. Like, yeah, this is real. This is so real. So then the producer is talking about how, like, they have all this evidence now. Now they believe Paul, but they keep hitting these dead ends. So that there was this sense that we're really close, you know, something is going on here. But every time we found a clue, we ran into a brick wall. The owner of the house, which had been abandoned, was a former prison guard who disappeared. You know, the people who had composite drawings never became real people. We never had names. We never could go after them as individuals. We couldn't expose them and get them brought in for questioning. So then the episode airs, and people kind of just don't believe it. But then these kids who say they were part of the string start coming forward. And one of them has the exact brand that Paul said mm-hmm. Johnny had. And then these kids started calling us. This one kid came forward named Jimmy, who, who had the brand and was telling these stories and confirming what Balachi was talking about. And it's more than one kid. Yeah. And now it's like, okay, 
this is now a ring. This is now some sort of crazy, scary, horrible prostitution child so sex like, ring. So it's like Johnny was either a part of this or not, but this actual like sex ring really did exist. It, right. Right. The next thing that happens is kind of a non sequitur. There's this whole thing about the Franklin Credit Union scandal. Can we just go through this quickly? Because it comes kind of to nothing. Yeah, it's Larry King, not CNN Larry King. <laughs> right. Lawrence E. King. Larry E. King. He embezzled $40 million with this credit union. And it also turned out that he was using that money f- to like buy and sell young boys for these very prominent politicians. Paul Bonacci being one of them. Right. Uh, and he also says that he was like damaged goods and they wanted like kids who had never been abused before. It's horrifying. Flipping a table. These people are garbage. It's the closest <laughs> thing to like an actual like evil thing in this But world. they never get him on it. He like only goes to jail on the money embezzling. Yeah. And then Paul Benassi tries to sue. They, he sues him uh, in civil suit for a million dollars. Wins. Does he and ever get that money? Never gets the money. Nope. Fine. Moving on. It's the weirdest part of the documentary that I'm like, what is happening here? Yeah. So the major new thing the major thing that we find out towards the end is that Noreen had to testify in that trial. And when she was on the stand, one of the prosecutors, whatever, somebody asked her, have you ever had any contact with your son since he disappeared? And she doesn't answer. And the judge says to her, if you don't answer, you'll be in contempt of court. So she had to answer. And what does she say? Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So I said once, I saw my son once. Two whole years ago. What happened? Johnny came to the door with some other guy. There was a knock on my door, a persistent knocking. And I went to the door and I could see a young man standing out there. And I kept looking at his eyes. And the eyes don't change. And so I said, who is it? And he said, it's me, Mom. Johnny. So he comes in for like two hours with his friend. And he's like, basically, she says, he tells the story about escaping from this sex ring and if they he's committed all these crimes as a part of this sex ring and if he were to come out then he'd go to jail or they'd kill him right like like, that's what they do they make the kids do all this illegal stuff too so that even if they and this is totally bullshit this whole story is bullshit i don't know why she's she's making are we on the same page with this yeah it's all made but i I also think what's bullshit if it's true let's just say or these sex rings do this thing where it's like you can't go because i made you steal this whatever like that's not how it works you're right 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 and then in a very short time it was over, and he said, I have to go. Do you believe that this encounter happened? Uh, n- no. Why do you think she would do make it up? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I really, I can't speak to why she would make it up. There's part of me that thinks some kid did come to her door, right. and she let herself believe that it was Johnny, uh-huh. and he said he was Johnny, but like... Like you and I were furiously texting this Furious. morning. In no world is there a, is there a situation in which he would come to the house and she would ever let him leave. No, you re-kidnap him again for his own good. You tie him up. You tie him. You up. tie him the hell up. For, the hell up. The hell up. For his own safety. Yeah, exactly. For his own goddamn safety. Yeah. And you run and scream like a banshee to anyone who yes. listens to you. Holy shit, I have my kid. Yeah. Or I have someone who's telling me this thing. Yeah. It's all crazy and not. it's not real. But and she was like, I kept my mouth shut for two years. I was like, why? I know. Because, and then she goes, why? Because he asked me to. Right. Okay, well. It was very simple. My son asked me not to say anything. <laughs> It just, it, that's the point in the movie where I was like, oh, she's gone crazy. Like, she's actually gone crazy. And I hate to say that. Yeah. Because it's She like, did so much important work and... And who, I mean, I can't, I'm, I am fortunate enough to not have any experience with this. I don't know what, what yeah. goes on and, and what kind of person you become. 
when this happens. There's one other thing that happens where like in 2006, people start emailing her photos of, of these, of like boys, like hog tie. I mean, it's, it's so horrifying. You I guys, will, I cannot get these images out of my head. I don't think I ever will. Yeah. I could not get my breath. And I thought I was going to pass out at seeing my son like that. But again, they're clearly not him. And she's like, it's clearly my son. That's my son. You don't have to believe me if you don't. If you, and like her ex-husband, Johnny's dad's like, that's not him. It's not him. First of all, there's no birthmark on his chest. And the, the picture does not even look like him. His feet were much larger than that even when he was kidnapped. So his, your feet, even if you've lost a lot of weight, still stays, stays the same length. So. Right. And then the police say, well, that's from the 70s. And then there's another story where it's like they were hogtying themselves and it was a game and they tried to get themselves out of it. And I'm yeah. like, no, that's not a fucking game. Right. Like yeah. the look in these kids. Eyes, like it's not a game. Yeah. But it's proven that it was, you know, three of the kids were identified. There's a, there's a picture of one boy and then a picture of three. And three of them were identified from the 70s. And the one wasn't. And the one that wasn't. She's, she's like, clinging Johnny, to like Johnny, that's him. That's him. That's him. And it's just, it's just not. It's not. No. Based on the the number of true crime documentaries, podcasts, articles I've read, if I had to put money on what I think happened to Johnny Gosh, I would say he was dead within 24 hours after he was kidnapped. Hmm. What do you think? I think that there there are psychotic, sickening rings like this in existence. I think they're real. I think a lot of things that Paul said prove that. Yeah. That house was real. I mean, yeah. we saw the footage. The branding is real. The kids' names, like, that's all real. This shit happens. It's disgusting. I would have nightmares about it, but it happens. It's yeah. evil and horrible. Did it happen to Johnny Gosh? I hope it didn't happen to anybody, but I, I mean, it's... I, I keep going back to the fact that other... Uh, paper boys were taken but I don't know what that means I don't know I hope I'm wrong me too um you guys thank you so much for your iTunes reviews keep them coming we're up to like 107 I'm, I know I'm obsessed or maybe more than that now oh my god uh, Jillian, news items. Okay, so this is a little, everyone's going to be like, oh, wait, what? Like the yeah. record scratch is going to happen. But <laughs> I host a podcast called The Hamilcast. It's about Hamilton and American Musical. I am hosting a Hamilton happy hour and Patrick will be bartending with me. Oh, hey. We're going to be behind the bar. We're playing the entire Hamilton cast recording from beginning to end. And it's at Offside Tavern in New York City, 137 West 14th Street, August 12th. Hamilton starts at eight on the dot. It's free. Um, but you have to like pay for your drinks, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it's for 21 and over. I'm sorry, but it's a bar. We're going to be <laughs> dancing and singing and like screaming, sing screaming at each other. Yeah. Uh, there are going to be raffles. If you want to get tickets to Hamilton, raffling off tickets to Hamilton from Graham Wyndham, Eliza's orphanage. And uh, we're going to raffle off some props that were used on Broadway. And I just got email confirmation today, raffling off Broadway con tickets. Oh my God, I'm obsessed with you guys. You, you poor true crime people who are like, what are you guys talking it's about? It's just gibberish right now. So come come and see us. Um, follow us on Twitter. We're obsessed. We're at True Crime Obsessed, no ED. Um, Instagram, Facebook. You can find everything at True Crime Obsessed. Dot com. Yep. Uh, okay, and what are we going to do next week? The Witness. Oh, my goodness. I think you can stream it on Amazon, and if we can find a link where you can watch it for free, like we'll put it up on our Twitter. But here's the trailer, and stay tuned afterwards for outtakes from today's show. Exactly what was it you heard? Save me, save me. 
Didn't this frighten you or shock you? No. I was 16 when my sister Kitty was murdered in New York City. For years, I avoided the details of that night, but it's worse not knowing the truth. The Times story was seen as proof that New York City was uncaring, and my sister's been the symbol of bystander apathy for decades. No one investigated the 38, no one followed up on it or anything of that nature. Was it worth all the attention it got, or was it a media creation? It's a fascinating story. And undoubtedly sold newspapers. I heard somebody saying, help, help. I called the police. You called the police? Always. The story doesn't make any sense to me. I'm sick of listening to people tell you 38 people stood by and white. That's not so. It really doesn't take a lot to kill a person, I guess. Maybe we could start it off by talking about what it is you're trying to accomplish by having a meeting with Winston Mosley. The choices that he made in his life were all related to the fact that no one helped his sister. And if he knows the truth, that's a peacefulness. At what point are you going to be satisfied? 50 years later, we're still talking about kidding. I can't stop until I feel like it's over. Yeah, when like, is I'll it over? over. I'll, I'll know when it's over. Can I ask you something? Because you texted me about it and we haven't addressed it yet. What? I don't know if this is just like a level of assholery that we shouldn't go to, but like her modern day hair. She's wearing a wig. <laughs> Do you know that I've seen this documentary? This is the third time. And it wasn't until right before I got the text from you that I was like, is that a wig? Yeah. And okay, like, it, <laughs> my my hair would be thinning, too, if I was going through absolute hell. Whatever yeah. you gotta do, Noreen. Do you. Yeah. Whatever, man. You did, you changed, you changed the way, uh, hopefully, law enforcement deals with missing and exploited children. There is a missing and exploited children's unit because of you. Because of you. Yeah. Do what, you wear those shoulder pads, <laughs> you wear that hair, you do you. You got this. You have a free pass. <laughs> August 14th, 1984, Eugene Martin, 13, disappears. Handsome devil. Yes. And I'll probably take that out because that is so creepy to super say. Super creepy. That's why I was like, yep, yeah, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> and then two other newsboys passed Johnny. Again, 800 newsboys right. out, like, in the delivering paper. Carry in the banner. <laughs> 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 that's a new that's a newsies joke guys sorry <laughs> if I had a like do I have it on my phone can I listen to it on the way home every morning <laughs> we's go where we's wishes we's as free as fishes sure be washing dishes what a fine life carrying the banner home Okay, you're doing the movie version. <laughs> yes. That's the movie version. No, they, they took it out for the Broadway version. I know. That's my favorite part of the whole movie. I know. That's my favorite part. I'm such a Newsies purist. I'm sorry, Newsies on Broadway. Me too. I was like, first what's you Con- What's Bot Conlon's uh, line? Never fear, Brooklyn's here. <laughs> what are you kidding me? Scott Conlon and his green eyes? Come Wait, on. Wait, what did you call him? Spot Conlon. Did you call him Scott? Did I by mistake? Mm-hmm. I get wild. <laughs> it's the green eyes. I can't help it.